0: Study of the book of James, um, Life Lessons with James. James is an immensely practical book with application for all of our lives, and interestingly, uh, this text to which we come, James chapter 3, has to do with the tongue and how we use our tongues, our speech, our words. And so it affects every one of us because we all communicate on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Um, and as we've noticed, James is not one to pull punches and he doesn't pull very many punches here this morning. So I would encourage you to open your heart to what God has to speak to us. And my prayer is that we would humble ourselves realizing our own sin. But then later on in James, it says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble." so that through humbling ourselves, we can then be the recipients of God's grace. So let's review just a little bit today, James number 7. This is our seventh sermon in the series, The Power of the Tongue. In a moment, we will read verses 1 through 12. But the key theme of the book of James is genuine faith. What James wants to highlight is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves an individual, does not just deliver them, from sin's penalty, namely the lake of fire for all of eternity, but it transforms their lives, not in an instant, but over time. Genuine faith impacts the way that we live, the way that we think, the words that we speak, etc. So he wants to highlight what does genuine faith look like. So here's our outline. We've covered chapters 1 and 2, chapter 1 being faith-tested, Trials was a big concept there. Chapter two, faith enacted. Works, remember faith without works is dead. Now chapter three, we're here, faith exposed. Namely through our tongues, our faith exposed. The shutters are pulled off and we see what's the real thing. Chapter four then is faith opposed by worldliness. And then chapter five will finish us off with faith finished, Um, speaking of endurance and endurance through prayer. Remember chapter 1, our faith was tested in three ways. First of all, by our response to trials. James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Number two, our faith was tested by our response to temptation. He says, when you are tempted, let no one say when he's tempted. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So don't blame God, but don't be deceived. He says, the true source of our temptation is our own lusts, our cravings, our desires. Then chapter two, oh, forgive me, last one in chapter one, our faith is tested third by our response to the word of God. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Chapter two was faith enacted, faith in action, if you will. We saw it in two ways, an impartial faith. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then number two was an operative faith. That's the big idea of faith without works is dead. And that verse encapsulates the entirety of the book of James. Faith without works is dead. When you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it results in good works of gratitude to God. But then we turn to chapter 3. And here's our chapter 3 outline. Faith exposed. Namely, through our tongues. Um, today we want to look at the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue. And then next, le- next week, if the Lord tarries, we'll look at verses 13 through 18 that talk about the pipeline of the tongue. Where does our speech come from? And we'll address that here this morning as well. But nonetheless, verses 13 through 18 have a lot to say about it. So here's today's outline. The power of the tongue, our faith is exposed by our tongues. But the power of the tongue, it has the power to direct, it has the power to destroy, and it has the power to delight. And as often I have to quote Warren Wiersbe, those three alliterated direct, destroy, delight, Those are from Warren Wiersbe. So I'm excited for what God has for us this morning. Before we read chapter 3, would you just flip back a page or two to chapter 1? We want to read James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Because what James does, like any good author, he has an introduction to his book. And that is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. He introduces the testing of our faith but then he wants to drill down and see what areas of life do we experience this testing? Oh, it's in the way that we treat people. Are we partial or are we impartial? It's our works, it's our tongues, etc. But verses 26 through 27 are the hinge verses that transition us into the body of the book. So look at verse 26. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain or worthless. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So one pastor, Alistair Begg, observed from this text Um, there's three marks of true religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father. Here it is, a controlled tongue. That's the one who, remember, if somebody thinks they're religious but they don't bridle, bridle their tongue, they're deceiving their heart. And that's worthless religion. Then the compassionate heart. Visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. And finally, an uncompromised testimony. In other words, we're unstained by the sin, the wickedness of the world. And these three thoughts, a controlled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an uncompromised testimony, continue to arise cyclically throughout the book. James just interweaves it. It's like a a good braid. Um, Amy asked me to braid her hair this week, and that was fun. That's my three-year-old daughter. I braided her hair. Believe it or not, I can braid. But (laughs) you understand the concept of a braid. One strand of hair interweaves with the next, and pretty soon you have a beautiful tap tapestry? I don't know if you can call hair a tapestry. I thought it looked okay when it got done. That's what James is doing here. He's braiding these three concepts throughout the book. A controlled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an uncompromised testimony. So with that in mind, let's look to James chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. My brethren, be not many masters, that means teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all, we all offend, we stumble. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. James doesn't pull any punches. Verse 7, For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame, It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Let's finish the chapter, shall we? Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show it out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's James chapter 3. We have a lot to cover. One thing that you might notice, some texts uh, present difficulty to understand. Sometimes you have to really sit and think to understand what the biblical author is communicating. And there's a few things in this passage that have um, maybe a little challenge to understand. But by and large, we could walk out the doors right now and understand what God expects of us. The difficulty of the text of James chapter 3 is not understanding the text, it's living the text. For we all stumble in many ways. The difficulty is living it. And I'll confess to you right now, if we look back over the last seven days of Daniel McCoy's life, how did Daniel use his tongue? Boy, I would be ashamed for you to know. My tongue did not sing the praises of God as it ought to have. My tongue was not kind and gentle to my family, to my children, as it ought to have been. So this text is just as much for me as it is for all of us. But it is for all of us. So James chapter 3, look at verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. So what James does here... What James does here, uh, well, let me give you a quote first. This is from a pastor, John MacArthur. He says, The tongue is a tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the real person. The tongue is a tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the real person. If you want to know who somebody really is, just listen to the words they speak for a little while, and you'll know who they are deep down. The tongue's a tattletale. And we see that through this passage. That was the point. If someone seems to be religious, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Hmm. Okay. So back to James chapter 3. Um, James, his, he transitions. He says, my brethren, we've seen that several times throughout the book. It's James's transitional phrase to help us move from one topic to another. But then he addresses first not the tongue but teachers. But he doesn't address the teachers themselves, he addresses us as a congregation. Obviously, he was writing to the Jewish church scattered abroad, but with the import that we would one day read it, and now it applies to us. He says, Be not many masters. Not many of you should be teachers, is the point. Well, isn't that a little hypocritical for me to say from up here, what am I doing right now? I'm teaching. Huh? But he gives a warning. And why would he say, not many of you should be teachers? Well, um, you could do a survey. What's the most dangerous jobs? You know, the top five most dangerous jobs. Maybe it's a lumberjack. You know, they're operating chainsaws. Or maybe it's an underground miner. Or you name it. There are many dangerous jobs. And part of the danger of many of the jobs is the tool of the trade. But what is the tool of the trade of the teacher? Is it not the tongue? That's why he says not many of you should be teachers. Because not many of us can control our tongues. But then he gives us two reasons why not many of us should be teachers. First of all, look at the end of verse 1. Knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, the stricter judgment wow remember matthew chapter 18 verse 6 jesus said and who shall whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea matthew 18 verse 6 the danger for the teacher is misleading the ones whom he or she teaches. That's the danger. And remember, culturally, we have in the United States of America a unique privilege of an astronomical literacy rate compared to the rest of history. We have, I don't know what the United States has, but we have a pretty good literacy rate. If most of us in the room can read at least satisfactorily, but think about it in antiquity. Think about ancient Israel, ancient the Roman Empire. Estimates vary. 10 to 15 percent. Some people say up to as much as 25 percent. Um, other estimates say 75 percent. I don't know. I wasn't there, but probably a low literacy rate. How much more important was the job of a, a teacher? They couldn't go and read it themselves. And so they had to take what the teacher said. He says, not many of us should be teachers. Why? First of all, knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation. But then he gives the second reason in verse two. For in many things, we offend all. In other words, we all stumble. Remember back in chapter two, verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point shall be, has become guilty of all of it. That's the same word, fails in one point. That means to stumble. We all make little mistakes, all the time with our tongues, we stumble. And that's the second reason why not many of us should be teachers, because we all stumble. And if we stumble, as a teacher, we'll receive the stricter judgment. We'll come back and think on that a little bit more in a couple minutes. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was giving some Um, instructions, some rebuke to the Pharisees. He said, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Remember the tongue is a tattletale that discloses the heart? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned." In other words, realize the standard at the day of judgment is what we said. Every single idle word, a word that was misused, inappropriately used, everything that comes out of our mouth, we have to answer for all of it. You follow that? James isn't pulling punches. It hurts. But then... James, you know, he gives a hypothetical. He says, well, maybe there's some of you out there thinking, well, I didn't stumble this week with my tongue. Good job. James says, if any man offend not in word, he doesn't stumble ever. The same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. There's this hypothetical, and it's just hilarious. Because it's like, well, if you can control your tongue the most difficult part of us to control, then you have control over every other aspect of your life. You're a perfect person. You obey perfectly. You do everything you ought to do. And we know simply that's not true of any of us, if we're honest. And it's, our tongue's a tattletale. Hmm. Um, But the idea of perfect here is important. He's brought it up several times in um, the book of James thus far. Chapter 1, verse 17, remember every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Um, Verse 25, he says, Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But then, just look back to verse 4 of chapter 1. Remember, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith works steadfastness or patience, verse four. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing." So this word um, has the idea it has the idea of completeness, maturity. And that is the goal in the Christian's life. First Peter 1 verse 16, "We ought to be holy as God is holy." That's the goal. Perfection is the goal. You can look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul says um, that in the areas where we have not attained, God will also show this. He's going to disclose the areas where we're less than perfect. And a lot of times he does that through testing, through pressure, through struggle. So we're not going to attain the sinless perfection in this life, but that's our aim Um, One commentator said this, Because the tongue is usually the hardest member of the body to control, the ability to do so is evidence of a pervasive maturity that speaks well for such a person. And he brings up this idea of the bridle. And that's a word picture in and of itself that he brings up just a few verses later. To bridle means to control, to be able to control our tongues. If we can bridle our tongues, we can bridle our whole body. If we control what comes out of our mouths, it shows its evidence of pervasive maturity, as that author said. Um, But look at verse verse 3. James, he loves illustrations. He likes to bring it practical. He likes to say, hey, what do we do every day that can remind us of this truth? Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth. He gives the illustration of a horse and then of a ship. Um, and the point is with something little, something big can be controlled. Something little controls something big. Illustration of the horse. We put the bit in the horse's mouth and now we can control him. How many of you love to just wrestle a horse and try to force it to do your will? All of yourself. I'm like, man, I'm a little scared. They're a big animal. They're way stronger than I ever will be. Uh, no, I don't like, horses are dangerous. I, no way am I wrestling one. But as soon as you put that bit in the horse's mouth, now, largely, you have control over them. Even when they start acting up, they really don't like that thing going too far back in their throat. You can control such a massive animal with such a small implement. And in the ancient mind, they're probably thinking mostly of the war horses, the majestic Horses used in battle. Think of those powerful beasts. Maybe what we think of, that was their greatest military vehicle. But what's ours? A tank? A Blackhawk? I don't know. What, What do you think of when you think of a massive military vehicle? Think of the tank. How can that little person in the tank that weighs several tons control it just from that little steering implement? Do you see the point? Then he brings up the ships. He says, behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor lists." In other words, the captain of the ship can stand at the helm and turn, I never remember what it's called, but, you know, the little steering wheel thing on a ship. And it, the helm. Okay, so I did say the right word. Well, that's good. See, I'm no sailor, forgive me. But that that captain can stand at the helm and he turns it and it moves the rudder. And that rudder is tiny comparatively to the whole ship and yet it controls it. And James, you see it, he gives two reasons that the ships are so difficult to control. He says, first, though they be so great, they are gigantic. But then he says, second, not only is the ship big, but they're also driven of fierce winds. Man, and not many of us have sailed out in the open ocean on a massive ship like that, but try to put yourself there if you've never been there. In a terrible storm, when the gigantic ship is being driven by fierce winds, you can feel the sea foam spraying in your face. You're in danger. But the captain's at the helm, and he controls it with just a little rudder. Well... James then brings it, and he applies it to us. Verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. He says, so also, just like the horse is big, but controlled by a bit, just like the ship is big, controlled by the pilot at the helm by a little rudder. He says, so also, our tongue is a little member. Oh, that's interesting. One author I read, I don't know how accurate it is, and it probably varies depending on people, but the tongue only weighs about two ounces. Did you know that? He said, though it weighs only two ounces, it has the power to shape destiny. Remember, the power to direct? Hmm. But James says, just like the horse is controlled by the little bit, just like the ship is controlled by the helm, so also our entire body, our entire life is controlled by this little two-ounce piece of meat sitting inside of our teeth. But it says it boasts of great things. The tongue boasts of great things. In other words, one author said, And who can argue that the power of effective speech is almost beyond calculation? Although boasting is most commonly used in scripture with a negative connotation, that does not seem to be James' point here. Instead, he's speaking of the tremendous influence of speech, whether good or bad, in comparison to the small and unimpressive body member from which it proceeds. In other words, our tongues have the power to direct. Even though they're such a small part of us, they have enormous power. So to apply this point, he says at the beginning, verse 1, not many of you should be teachers. Be not many masters. So let me make that application to us. Not many of us should be teachers. Now, remember 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul said to Timothy, if any man desires the office of a bishop, like a pastor, he desires a good thing. Teachers are important. Let me invite you. If you think God would have you to teach, We always need more people who are willing to accurately teach the word of God and then to live it in their lives. But that's what's so hard about being a teacher. We have to live what we preach. So let me invite you. If you want to teach the word of God, are you willing to be a doer? Am I willing to be a doer of the word of God? 2 Timothy 3, he said... And you have known the Holy Scriptures. From a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. He says, dedicate yourself to them because they're profitable. And Romans chapter 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? If no one is willing to stand and to teach the word of God, to study it, to teach it, to live it, no one's going to get to hear the marvelous news of the gospel. And yet, beware of self-serving motives. If you want to teach the word of God, first check your heart. Sure, it comes with prestige. People look at you differently if you teach the word of God. But James says, don't think about that. Think about the stricter judgment that's coming. But then James turns and he talks about, number two, the tongue's power to destroy. The power to destroy. And we're all, unfortunately, a little bit too familiar with this. We've all probably employed our tongues to wreak havoc in others' lives, but we've also all been sinned against deeply by other people's sharp, penetrating tongues that cut deep, deeper than any man-made tool. End of verse 5. He says, Behold how great a matter, a little fire kindles. Now, some of you maybe really enjoy literature. Some of you maybe don't, and that's okay. But there's a a really neat wordplay here in Greek. We can't quite see it in English, um, but he uses the same word. Literally, it's how small a fire kindles how great a forest. This word, it doesn't... It can mean either how great or how small, depending on the context. And what it's getting at is the magnitude of size. It's either extremely small or extremely large. Does that make sense? And he uses it twice in this verse to mean both the opposite. He says, how many sparks does it take to start a wildfire? Well, we live in the desert. We're well acquainted with that, aren't we? It only takes one spark like smokey the bear would say only you can stop wild fi- or prevent wildfires forest fires it takes just a little spark he says how small a spark kindles how great a forest from one little spark all of a sudden the entire forest is ablaze and the tongue is a fire the tongue is a fire And James, he's using a metaphor. He says the tongue is a fire. Our tongues aren't literally on fire right now. At least mine isn't. I hope yours isn't. What he's saying is there's a matter of correspondence between your tongue and a fire. Think of a fire. A fire produces heat, which is nice if you're cold, but if you get too close, it'll burn. A fire has the tendency to consume. It'll eat as much as you ever want to feed it. It has the power to destroy. It, all you've got to do is just look up at the mountains, our beautiful forests destroyed by wildfires. You look at all these dead standing forests because a wildfire just roared through there and incinerated the entire forest. Your tongue has that sort of fiery power to incinerate relationships with just a few wicked words. Or think of, a, think of the Great Chicago Fire back in 1871. I don't think any of us were around then. Um, that'd be like a new world record, at least a modern world record. 1871. Destroyed 17,000 plus buildings, killed over 250 people, and torched over three and a half miles of the city of Chicago. But you know how it started? They don't know for sure, but it's surmised that it happened in some little old lady's barn with just a little lantern and a cow kicked it over. And all of a sudden, the whole city of Chicago's up in flames. That's the kind of fiery power our tongues carry. What a dangerous weapon. But then he says, Your tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. And I find this one interesting. This is the one that maybe it's, it's worthwhile t- for you to keep meditating on to try to understand what he's saying. A world of iniquity. Well, that's really fascinating. James brings up the concept of the world two other times here in the book of James. Back in chapter 1, verse 27. Remember, keep yourself unstained from the world. And then he brings it up in James chapter 4, verse 4. We'll get there, Lord willing, but look over there. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The idea of the world as it's used in James, as well as other authors, maybe you can, if you want, just peek over. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. John has a lot to say in the book of 1 John about the world. But verse 19, he says, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lies, resides in wickedness. The idea is that the world, the Greek word cosmos, the world lies in wickedness. In other words, it's under the thumb of the evil one. And it's this world system that is radically against God that wants to forsake truth, promote wickedness. That's the world. That's what it means. But James says your tongue is a world of iniquity. In other words, our tongues, when we we misuse them, when we use them for evil purposes, what they do is they say, I'm in alignment with this world that's against God. Do you follow that? Boy, that is a powerful illustration of what our tongues are doing. Um, here's how the commentator Douglas Moo put it, by virtue of being the most difficult of all parts of the body to control, it becomes the conduit by which all the evil of the world around us comes to expression in us. But then he says, if you're back in James chapter 3, he says... It defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. There in verse 6. The tongue, it's among our members, it's this small member, but it defiles the whole body. So there's the question. In what way does your tongue defile your entire body, your entire person? Well, that's interesting. Um, Jesus already addressed this. Remember back Matthew chapter 12 that we read a few moments ago? Out of the abundance of the heart The mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. That's why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it are the issues of life. What's in your heart will inevitably come out your mouth, so keep your heart. It's not just, I choose not to speak today, Sometimes you know, if we don't have anything nice to say, we probably shouldn't say anything at all. We tell our kids that all the time. But also, the principle is, we our hearts need to change if our speech will ultimately change. Um, Matthew chapter 15. Remember, the Pharisees come to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And I mean, we're Americans. We like to wash our hands before meals a lot of times. We want to be clean and sanitary and get rid of germs. We understand that. I can relate with the Pharisees. Jesus, look at your disciples' hands. They're filthy. But what was Jesus' answer? It's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out. What Jesus was illustrating is, eating with unwashed hands is the least of your issues if you have a wicked heart. But it says... Verse 6 again, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and it's set on fire of hell. Um, this use of the tongue, this is um, commentator Homer Kent, he says, this use of the tongue sets on fire the course of our life. Literally, it means the wheel of existence. And what it does is James is depicting life as a, a round, a continuing round of activity. The wheel of existence. And he says it sets on fire that entire course of our existence. Because the tongue betrays one's thoughts and attitudes, it also re- represents our lifestyle, another author said. But then it says, he, he's making the point, and I don't like my tongue being called fire. I don't like somebody telling me that I'm setting on fire the whole course of nature. I don't like someone telling me, Daniel, your tongue is a world of iniquity. But here's, here's the most... Difficult to wrestle with at the end of verse 6. And it is set on fire of hell. And it is set on fire of hell. The uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline to hell. That's what we want to talk about next week in verses 13 through 18, the pipeline of the tongue. But the uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline. To hell. That's pretty powerful imagery. James is saying, your tongue's a fire, incinerating relationships, working all manner of destruction, and it's hellish. It's devilish. All right, verse seven. For every kind of beasts, and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. He changes the illustration. Thank you, James. We were... We were, we were getting a little discouraged talking about all this fire and that our tongues are set on fire of hell. He turns to nature again. He says, look, is there any creature that's greater than man? Either we can domesticate them or we can control them or we can kill them. God made man as the pinnacle of his creation. He made us as the ones who bear dominion. You can go and look at that, Genesis chapter 1. That's his point. He says all of these beasts, birds, serpents, things in the sea, um, which is interesting when they get off of the ark, Genesis chapter 9 verse 2, those same categories are used. The beasts and the birds, those are the creatures that walk or fly. The reptiles and the creatures of the sea, those that creep or swim. James's point, we can control all the animals, all the creatures in creation, and yet we cannot control our own tongues because that's what he says. Verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. An unruly evil, it's restless. Our tongues are out of control. It's like a wild animal, a wild, fierce animal. Dangerous. And he says it's full of deadly poison, like the venom of a cobra or a rattlesnake. Our tongues possess inherent danger, deadly poison when employed for polluted purposes. Now, obviously, our tongues are not always out of control like this. A lot of times we're able to hold back those polluted words that want to come out. Right now, I'm the only one talking. All the rest of you are controlling your tongues. But what James is doing is exposing our inability to control our tongues. We do not have the capability in and of ourselves We need supernatural strength, the grace of God to transform our hearts so that what comes out of our mouth is good because our hearts, by the power of the Spirit, have been changed to be good. So our tongues, they have incredible potential, both for harm, for good. We can use them as dangerous weapons. There's tons of metaphors like this. Let me see if I put it on a slide. I didn't, forgive me. Um, Like a sword, Psalm 57 verse 4, Psalm 64 verse 3. Like a serpent's tongue, Psalm 140 verse 3, or like we just saw, the deadly poison. Um, Like a deadly arrow, Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 8. really what the author of Proverbs said in chapter 18, verse 21, holds true. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. But how do we apply this? Our tongues are a fire, a world of iniquity. They have a dangerous power to destroy. So think about improper uses of the tongue. And what I would encourage you to do, probably the premier book on speech has to be Proverbs all over the place. The Proverbs are just full of wise counsel to us of how to use our mouths for God's purposes. So here's just a few. I'd encourage you sometime get a notebook out or a Word document and just start writing down. Read through the Proverbs and write down every time it says something about your speech. How we should use our tongues, whether it's how the wise uses their tongues or how the fool. But here are a few improper uses of the tongue lying, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Or slander, James chapter 4, verse 11. James says, Do not speak evil one of another, my brethren. Slander, but then there's flattery. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5 talks about that. The difference is, flattery is saying something nice to someone's face. That's not true in your heart. You're saying, you know, maybe it's you walk up, boy, you look so, so good today. But in your heart, you're thinking, man, where'd you get those clothes? The dumpster? That's what flattery is. Gossip is just the opposite. It's saying something mean behind their back, even if it's true. That's gossip. Proverbs 17, 9, 18, 8. Um, Proverbs 12, verse 18, they're like sword thrusts are the words of the foolish. And then Proverbs 15:1, angry words. Remember, that's the soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up strife. So the tongue has the power to direct, the tongue has the power to destroy, and the tongue has the power to delight. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. What James does here is he describes what the double-minded does. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's, I'm, I'm dually minded. One moment I want to serve God, the next, all I'm doing is serving self. It's like the idea of a limp. I'm serving God, never mind. Serving God? Never mind. That's a double-minded person. He says, with our tongues, we bless God and our Father. And ought he to be blessed? Of course. That's what pastor is preaching. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that's why we gather, is to bless the name of our blessed God. But how dare we come to church and bless God's name and then get in the car or get home and slander the person sitting down the row from us? How dare we? They're made in the similitude of God, James says. They are God's image bearers. So to slander them is to slander God. How dare we? Verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. And I've said it many times, James doesn't pull very many punches, but here's one he does pull. Instead of a railing rebuke like we deserve, he just says, end of verse 10, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not so to be. Why? Because wicked speech is incompatible with our profession of faith. Let James illustrate it a couple more times. We're almost done here. Verse 11. He turns back to nature. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. James's point, look at nature. He says the fountain, and we understand this. A spring in the desert is crucial for our survival. If we didn't have the water, we wouldn't live here. When the water dries up, so do we. But he says, go find a spring. Go hike in the, in the rubies. Find a spring and drink a little bit of the water. And, and you test it. You see, is it fresh water or is it salt water? Well, if it's fresh water, can that spring also produce salt water? No. The spring can only produce one. He says the same thing with agriculture. And James gives us um, the three most common agricultural products in the ancient world, especially ancient Israel. Um, See, I'm trying to find it. There it is. Three most common. Fig trees. Olive trees and grapevines. Those were all over. So much so that Israel is often referred to through the scripture metaphorically with the idea of figs and the fig tree. They were well known for that. But James says, wait a second. Trees can only produce one kind of fruit. He says fig trees don't produce olives. Grapevines don't produce figs. Apple trees don't produce oranges. Squash plants don't grow carrots. We understand that. When you plant an apple tree, it can only produce apples. Or it doesn't, but it can't produce another kind of fruit. Even nature itself refuses to deceive us with such inconsistency. You're never going to see an apple tree also with oranges on it. You're never going to have a freshwater spring producing salt water. But our tongues do it all the time. Our tongues are willing to bless God and curse our brother, curse our sister. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Even the admirable things we might express from time to time are rendered suspicious because of our contradictory use of our tongue. Do you see how the way that we use our tongue for evil casts doubt on all the good that we might have said? Because if someone lies to you once, you start wondering, what else have they told me that wasn't true? But what about proper uses of the tongue? The tongue has the power to delight. Um, well, let's first look. Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge. That means the wise doesn't necessarily Automatically speak his mind, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. Proverbs ten nineteen. In the multitude of words, there wants or lacks not sin, but he who refrains his lips is wise. So proper uses of the tongue: speak the truth. Proverbs eight seven. Diffuse anger and conflict. and to promote healing and life. Proverbs 12.25, heaviness in the heart of man makes it stoop, but a good word makes it glad. So our tongues have the power to direct, though they weigh only two ounces, they have the power to shape destiny. They have the power to destroy. The uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline to hell. But our tongues also have the power to delight. The tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs 12, 18 says. How I want to close is consider these two verses. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That means to build up, encourage others. That it may minister grace unto the hearers. And Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be... Always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Here's the big idea. Our tongues, they have the power to direct, to destroy, to delight. Our job with our tongues, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus, our job is to use our tongues to communicate gospel grace. Grace. That's what our tongues are for. To help people see we are all sinners before a holy God. Me, you, every one of us. We fall short. We all stumble in many ways. There's no hope for us in and of ourselves. Instead, we are merely children of wrath. Yet God still loves us. And he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. He tasted death for us all so that all we must Taste is life. And Jesus rose from the dead and he offers eternal life to you and to me through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's the Savior. And faith is simply accepting God's promise of eternal life to all who would believe through Christ. Christ. But thinking on this concept of grace reminds me of the song Amazing Grace. Now, if you know who John Newton was, he was not a good person before he became a Christian. He was a slave trader, just a terrible, terrible man. And if John Newton were standing here today, he'd tell us that. But God's amazing grace transformed John Newton's life. And so John Newton then used the rest of his life to proclaim God's amazing grace. And that's how we receive this most beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. My sweetheart Emily's going to come on up. She'll play the piano. I just want to sing this first stanza of amazing grace that's on the screen. We'll sing it through two times. And let me just encourage you meditate on God's grace to you that then we can use in our speech. Would you join me in prayer set a watch O Lord over our mouths please keep the door of our lips father we confess to you how wicked we are how much we stumble in our speech please forgive us for our words of destruction this week and please give us courage to go and to confess that sin to one another the ones whom we have sinned against and to request their forgiveness, and to begin the healing process. Because the tongue of the wise promotes healing. Lord, we need your help because we are so weak. We struggle so much to control our tongues. But thank you for your grace that abounds where our sin was once abundant. Thank you for the blood of your Son that can cleanse us from every sin. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts to help us speak the words that we ought to speak such that no corrupt communication would proceed from our mouths, but only what is profitable for edification. Help us. May our speech be seasoned with your grace this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You are dismissed.